0: Another Art of the Frame podcast. I'm your host, Scott Simmons, and today I am chatting with Misha Tannenbaum. And this is kind of a, I want to call this sort of like this is a very special episode of the podcast because we're not talking about a particular uh, film or television program or any specific like editorial type of um, project in this one. What we're talking about is a little bit about sort of editing education. And what I have been calling uh, sort of editing entrepreneurship, and I say that because if you don't recognize Amisha's name, you probably know at least one of his companies and his websites, which is EditStock.com, because many of us have used footage from EditStock to edit for various things, be it um, classes you were taking or you may be wanting to – build a demo reel, or you may just want to practice in a genre that you usually don't get to work in. So that's edit stock. And there's also, we're going to talk about edit mentor, which is a new way to learn editing. And I don't mean like how to learn to push buttons. It's, it's bigger than that. But let me first say, uh, Misha, thanks for joining me for this little uh, chat here,
1: Scott. Thanks. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Always fun to talk to you.
0: Yeah. You know, I think, um, so you were an editor at one point in your life. Is that, uh, is that correct? I would say for the vast majority of my life. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. You're still a young man. So you've got, uh, you've got a long time to go before you, uh, you know, can, 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 can stop doing any, anything. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's a long life. That's, that's what we all hope for there. Um, but so you edit stock was your first sort of company that you began when you, when you stepped out of the edit share or, or, is, or was there one before that, that we don't know about?
1: No, EditStock was the first one, and I always sort of felt the calling to entrepreneurship in general. Um, but when EditStock started, it took a few years before it became my primary source of income. Like maybe two years, where I was still working in edit on shows in edit bays uh, before I like kind of took the leap. Well, you uh, you were you were in the chair, as we call it. You know when you're when you are the you know,
0: when you are an editor doing. Real editing. Now, I'm sure you were probably making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars at that. What, whatever could make you want
1: to leave day to day life in the edit chair? Well, I was already a millionaire. So, well, hey, it, it may, no, I, um, it's all for fun. You know what? Actually, it's funny because several times I've taken a step back financially to do something that was felt right or was more. Uh, enjoyable. Uh, believe it or not, the sh- the first scripted TV show that I took, um, I stepped down from being an editor of a food network show where I was earning more money, a lot more money to be an assistant editor on a scripted show because it was c- more fun, you know, like a cooler experience, just a different yeah. experience and sort of like my goal. And I did that for a number of years. Um, and during that time, I uh, started EditStock, and af- you know, a- after the second year, when it had picked up enough that it it couldn't replace my salary, but I could live on it. Yeah, I was like, you know, I can always in our industry, you can always leave for a little while and come back. Nobody needs to know. It's not like you're working at a bank and you need to show on your resume a perfect linear step. You know, everybody takes a job for a few months and then. An, takes a hiatus and then another job. And I just thought, I'm gonna do it for a month full time and see how I like it. Then it was like, yeah, then it was like, I'm gonna do it for three months full time and see if I can live on it. Then it became, I'm just doing this now.
0: All right. Let me let's let's dig into that for a little bit because you said something in there that uh, that's I think is important for people to hear, and also important for myself to hear because I can relate to something you're saying because it's something that I have probably wanted to do but maybe have not ever done over the many years of editing. It is stepping back and potentially stepping out of. I don't want to say guaranteed income, if you will, because freelance and self employment is never guaranteed income, but maybe. Um, stepping back where you may have to take less money or you may have to take a risk to do the next, next thing, which I kind of feel like maybe that's something I have wanted to do before, but haven't really, haven't really done. How did you, I'll I'll say like mentally prepare yourself. I don't know. Did you have a family you have to convince a wife you have to convince that you're going to make less money or you're going to take a bigger risk? Like, how do you, how did you sort of make that leap of faith, that step,
1: if you will, that like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to take a risk here and see what happens. So the first thing I'm gonna say, well, at the time, no, I didn't have a wife or kids like I do now, so the that risk was easier. the risk was easier to take. But I just also wanna um, convince you and, and the audience that actually having a job is a false narrative that we tell, or a false security that we tell ourselves anyway. Okay, but um, now let me let's say something there. You say
0: having a job, when I hear someone say having a job, I think about. Um, you have an employer who can fire you versus many of us who are in the self-employed thing, which technically we don't have a job, but we do have a job. Are you, are you talking both of those
1: things there or are you talking, um, you know, employment versus self-employment? In that case, I was talking about having a job with a boss that could fire you, but I just want to, um, I can kind of phrase the question and, and, and ask you since you do most of your work, uh, freelance, do you feel every day like you're taking this huge risk versus when you, if, if you were to work at a company full time?
0: Um, I do not feel I'm taking a huge risk at this point, probably because I've been doing it long enough. But at the same time, I will say that with every job that ends and, and my market's a little bit strange. So I don't get hired for you know 10 or 15 or 25 weeks on the show. Sometimes it's oh, I need you for three days or here's this job. I need it done in three weeks. And if I have three jobs that need to be done in three weeks, I can do them all at once. So on the one hand, I I, I would say no, no risk at all, except the fact that it feels like a daily risk because, you know, what's the next thing that's going to come along? And, you know, am I going to be at a point where I'm waiting on three different jobs to give me notes back? So I'm twiddling thumbs for two days and not making any money. But I think that's part of self-employment is you sort of have to be able to kind of build that weirdness into your brain, if, if you will. So I, yeah. I thank you for that question. I don't think I even answered it.
1: I think that people have this false security about a job at a place. Like it'll last forever. Like the company will never go out of business or face hard times or, You won't be a fit anymore or your personal interests will change. And, you know, people think of entrepreneurs like like me as these great risk takers. But actually, I'm a fairly conservative person. And I think that the risk, the real risk is having your income, your capital coupled with your hourly labor. That's the real risk. What you want to do is become a brand and diversify your income to come from many different streams. And ideally, some of those streams have nothing to do with how many hours you put in.
0: Uh, okay, I, I do like that because that's a really interesting way to put it is d- dependent on your hourly labor because I think that is how very many uh, self-employed people sort of see what they what they do. And then you also said something that's very uh, common in this day and age, which is multiple revenue streams. How are you going to, you know... Is that like driving an Uber part of the time and delivering pizzas part of the time and editing part of the time? I mean, it literally could be that, and I know many people that do um, that, that do just that.
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of people think of diversifying their risk by, for example, being a an editing teacher and then also, uh, you know, maybe a um, an editor, and then maybe you're also an assistant sometimes, or maybe or maybe you're a pizza delivery person sometimes, but all those things are hourly labor. And what I'm telling you is everyone should be looking for something that like, and I, you know, something like you invest in the stock market, you invest in your friend's company, you started a post house and people work there and it's not you. Um, you take on a job, like let's say in your situation, you had three weeks to cut three projects and you could hire someone to cut one of those projects and pay them for half of it and pay them half the money. That's the kind of work that I'm talking about trying to build into your life.
0: So part of that is just sort of potentially rethinking what,
1: you know, what you're doing to exist as it is almost. Uh, Yeah. You do not want all of your money coming uh, from your hourly labor. That's, that's the risky part actually not the starting of the business. I mean, I'm not saying plow a bunch of money into a business. You know, you can start a business with very little money, but I'm saying you need to think about ways to earn money when you sleep or when uh, the internet's, you know, someone's on the internet or when um, somebody else is doing the work for you, but they use you to, to be the main conduit of the, of the transaction.
0: Well, was was that kind of what was in your brain as you were, con- you were concepting edit stock or did you see the, did you see there was a need for what edit stock does? And people don't know, I think we mentioned it as it, as it became on, but editstock.com and you can, you can buy raw dailies, raw footage and, uh, and, and edit and edit with it. So like, did you see a hole in the market to fill
1: or, or kind of all of the above? I saw a hole in the market, of course, because it's something that I wanted And I think that most, not even I think, I know for sure that most business ideas stem from a problem that you have in your own life that you're trying to solve. And if you have that problem, there's a collection of other people who have that problem and you need to be able to tell them about it. Um, But the reason that I started EditStock, I would say was more the fun of doing it. Like At the time, I didn't need the money. Um, and I took $4,000 to start the website. And I said to myself, like, this is definitely not going to work. Um, I'm never going to invest another dollar into this website other than these $4,000, which I'm using to set up the site and build a logo and that's it. And, um, in the first three months we made a hundred dollars in total sales. (laughs) And we had one movie, you know, and it, Yeah. By the end of the first year, we had done $12,000 in sales. And um, I remember there being a point where we had, I used to have to mail out manually, you know, like literally handwrite letters to all the filmmakers and put checks in the mail. And um, I wanted to buy this stamp that had my return address on it so that I didn't have to write it out by hand. The stamp cost $12. (laughs) And I just, I just said, I was like, I will never pay money out of my pocket ever this can only come out of the business. And so I didn't buy that stamp for like months. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. I just I, refused, I think, refused to have it cost me anything. Yeah. But that's sort of good business practices that you're
0: not, that, you know, that, that you have sort of a a, a finite thing that you're willing to spend. You're, you you do not want to, you know, there's a spend money to make money, but you know, there's a, a part where a business has to make money itself to invest back into the business. So that there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things to kind of unpack there, I guess, as far as what you could have done that, you know, that you didn't do. I mean, I think um, I, I, I mentioned, I'm glad you threw out that number of 4,000 to start that because I think most people probably have no concept of like, what it costs to to start a business like that, that is kind of basically, you know, stems from a, from a website. I mean, I would have, I could have thought you could have said five times that, or you could have said, ah, you know what? I did every bit of it myself and it cost me zero, you know, until, you know, until I had to renew the domain or something. So that's really interesting. It's an interesting number that, um, I'm glad I appreciate you sharing that.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I tried to do it actually for zero and I got as far as having built a website and I was like this just looks terrible like I just need someone to do it for me because <laughs> it's not easy I don't know what it's not easy it's not easy and um what I'm learning so yeah at some point we're going to talk about edit mentor which is a significantly like a uh you know whatever it's called a, a factor of 10 more ambitious project than edit stock um and there I've learned a lot of lessons uh, you know, that business could not have been started with $4,000.
0: Well, I think that, um, you know, both of them being internet-based businesses that, you know, whether it's internet-based or brick and mortar, they all are fraught with their own issues and their own potential problems, you know, as, as well as, as far as how to run them. Um, did you have a business background at all, either from education or from, uh, you know, like, would, would your, did your,
1: one of your parents run a business or was did you sort of learn all this on the fly? Um, my mother you know, who is, who would never describe herself as an entrepreneur, has run her own business for 30 something years. Um, It's a daycare center with uh, 65 kids right now. Well, that's not small. It's not small. It's not small. And she built it in my basement. And uh, I was one of the first students to go there. I think she built it literally just to put me through school. (laughs) Uh, There was six of us in my basement. And then uh, she rented a place for ten years, where I think their maximum capacity was thirty-two. At the end of her ten-year lease, the company didn't renew it, so she went and doubled down and rented a place that was twice as big. And every one of her thirty students moved with her. And wow. over the time, over that time, she just um, she she just continued to grow. I don't think that. You know, 95% of businesses in the United States earn less than $2 million a year. And I think it's, I think even 90% learn, earn less than $1 million a year. Most business owners are, when you walk down the street and you walk by, you know, Monster Thai Food and, uh, you know, so-and-so Doggy Daycare. And th- these are, this is someone's entire life, their passion, their dreams, their goals, and they might not make a million dollars and they might not say to you that they're an entrepreneur, but that's exactly what they are and what they're doing.
0: Uh, well, I, you're, I mean, you're right because, the, you know, we kind of go back to that, that risk thing. And anytime you sort of, you, you sort of dip that toe in the water, whether it's, you know, $4,000 or $4 million, you know, to, th- to start out, I mean, there is, there is risk and in, risk involved in that. And I, and I, and I think maybe I, I would be interested to ask how many entrepreneurs would, would, say to themselves oh i i am a very risky person or i'm a very uh, non-risky person i I think that'd be an interesting uh interesting metric to to survey
1: yeah you'd be surprised because i do not consider myself a risky person or i try not to be um even though i take risks but they're calculated risks and they're risks that i look at you know for example that four thousand dollars it was a risk but it was four thousand dollars that i was willing to let go that I was yeah. willing to lose it wasn't I didn't borrow four thousand dollars you know so it was um, and and you know I also recognize that for a lot of people four thousand dollars especially in pandemic eras a lot of money but um, you know you can start a business with zero dollars um, or very few you know a couple hundred bucks um, as well It doesn't mean you're going to get to one place or another faster or slower.
0: Well I I want to ask that that business question again uh because I myself when I was in college took I don't think any business classes and it is one of the biggest regrets that uh that I have of my of my many years of schooling that I did not take business classes and I think in this day and age especially we're in a world where you do not go to work for you know IBM or standard oil or nabisco your entire life that's right. Th- being able to understand how to start a business, how to run a business, even if the business is you yourself and I, um, I think that's so important. Um, and I was—I was, I was going to—I was wondering, did, did you were you smart enough to take some business stuff in college, or or maybe you didn't even go to college? I don't know. Hell, you, you, Kelly, you <laughs> may have been a dropout,
1: junior high dropout. For all I know, I uh, did not do well in high school at all, and it had nothing to do with brains. It had everything to do with. Uh, you know, there was like a kind of like a rebellious nature to me and, um, well, whatever I, I didn't learn. I, I didn't, uh, learn that well. And I only got accepted to one college, which was Georgia college. Um, and I grew up in Massachusetts. I'd never been to the South, never been to Georgia, never seen a rural area in my life. Oh, uh, How was
0: we could talk? We could have, we should have an <laughs> offline chat about that. I want I want to hear more about that. Yeah.
1: It was the first time that the the person who picked me up at the airport was driving me to the school to, for a visit. I said, I've never seen wild cows before. And he said, those are not, there's no such thing as wild cows, man. That's, this is a farm. They're they're penned in. (laughs) I love it. This is a farm. I've never seen that much land, you know, be a, be somebody's farm. Um, Yeah. But in college I did much better. Like I had a good, I had good grades. Um, I was a broadcast journalism major. I did not take any business classes. Um, I don't think, I think that right at the end of my college experience is when this sort of transition to every editor as a brand was probably beginning.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Like, like Scott, you, you know, you write blogs you make podcasts and, you know, you do that obviously for enjoyment, but it has a return for you, which is that people know you as Scott, the editor who knows a lot of information and it builds a brand for you. So let's say you left editing and you went to go work at Blackmagic or uh, Panasonic or something. They would go, oh, Scott Simmons. I know him. He writes for you know, pro video coalition or movie or he's got this podcast, um, you know, art of the frame and, and those things all help you. And we should all, everybody who's freelance certainly should think that way. Is, is, is that unique now
0: that we have the internet? I guess probably it is unique now because the internet is a thing because they were, people were freelance editors, Before the internet was a, was a thing, but I guess you didn't, you don't think about being able to sort of build a, you know, quote unquote, build a brand, but, you know, but without the internet, we we wouldn't be in this situation without the internet, which is, I guess, really a dumb thing to even say, because of course we wouldn't be like, there would be no edit stock. There would be no edit mentor without the internet. So I don't even know what, that's a dumb point I just made. I'm going to edit that out. I,
1: okay. I don't know. There might be like, Probably some not. mail. there might be some, I mean, didn't like lynda.com sell DVDs that they mailed to you and they made millions of dollars doing that. So I don't know. Well, if I just yeah. That I,
0: you know, I, I, think that, uh, I think that's kind of a good example of like, you know, a business that, that, that kind of like transitioned through many different phases of, of life, you know, pre-internet, early internet, uh, you know, th- m- 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 huge internet. Po- I don't know. Are we in post-internet yet? Uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of a, but I think that, you know, that's a great entrepreneur story as well, because I mean, my understanding of it, it was just like, you know, one person doing training type of stuff and it, her name was Linda and boy, like, look where that ended up. Well, or like, uh, you know, let's, I mean, the obvious one, um, is for us would be like IO with, uh, with Emery and his partner that started, um started to frame my own it was a need that they, that they saw and they f- were filling a hole uh, for their clients and, you know, the rest is history with Adobe buying. Like, that's a fantastic example of, uh, you know, entrepreneurship at its, you know, f- you know, at, at, at a great height, then we've got a great
1: product out of it, you know? So that's kind of, yeah. I don't know where I was
0: going with that one either, but, um,
1: you know, they're, they are very different stories between so, uh, the Linda, Linda, um, and her husband, Bruce, um, they did not take, you know, investment, I don't think really ever, even though they were offered it, there's a there's a podcast about them on NPR, but I can't remember what it's called, how I built this, I think. And they, um, you know, they didn't take investment until they sold, whereas Emery and frame IO, took seed funding, um, right from the concept stage, and then did a series A round where they raised tens of millions and before they sold. So that's like a hyper growth story. Like Linda's story, I think took 10 years. I think frame IO did everything in five or maybe even less.
0: It's some pretty different, different paths to take, take for sure. Um, you know, especially in a VC age that, uh, you know, if if you have that option and choosing not to, not to do that, but I mean, you know, taking VC money comes with its own issues and, and, and set of baggage, as opposed to not and billing it, you know, bootstrapping the whole thing that has its own, you know, unique path and potential set of issues. So there's really, uh, it really is a lot of different ways to, um, to, you know, to, to do things these days, which, you know, let's, let's transition that into edit mentor a little bit because yeah. you had, um, experience building a website, building a business online, you know, in the post-production realm, sort of with edit stock. Yeah. And then, um, Edit Mentor, which is an online editing, uh, I don't want to necessarily call it a training ground. It, it, it is a learning, training, um, u- unique situation to learn editing and post-production because it is not focused on software at all, even though you do use software, but more on you know learning the craft of things, which is something people talk about all the time with editing education. But more often than not, you're working with the tool and it's focused around the tool. So. Uh, before we get into the philosophical side of that, let's talk uh, the business side for a minute because yeah. that was a bigger uh, investment, obviously. Um, how did you? What was your sort of thinking there when it came time to sort of bring that bring that thing to
1: life? Okay, so you should know that Edit Mentor is by an order of magnitude a larger scale project and idea than edit stock ever was. And we're sort of straddling the world that's straddling these two worlds of startups, which is bootstrapping. Bootstrapping is the edit stock way where you spend $4,000 and you say, from now on, only whatever the company makes is what I put in. And the venture capitalist way, where you say, I have an idea, before I make any money or spend any of my own money, I'm gonna raise, I'm gonna sell a percentage of this idea and try to raise a couple million dollars and then build the team and build the product hyper fast right mm, now. Okay. But now
0: let me ask you this. Without edit stock, would edit mentor have happened?
1: No. Okay. Absolutely not. Gotcha. So edit edit mentor was supposed to be part of edit stock, and it was also ah. supposed to be bootstrapped. As you can imagine a lot of people on edit stock ask me for training in addition to the footage but I fundamentally don't believe in video tutorials as a great creative training method. I think video tutorials are pretty good for technical training. yeah, um, but I don't think they're very good for creative and that's because you really have to you really have to do it. I mean You can learn a great tip from someone, but, you know, Scott, you probably got in your mind a bag of tricks, like somebody says, oh, let's put a flashback here. And in your head, you're like, okay, that'll probably be black and white. I'll probably use this transition. I'm probably going to add this kind of music. You know, you have these shortcuts in your head, of what you're going to put together there. Um, And that, that kind of stuff takes wisdom and takes hands-on training and it takes uh, experience. Yes. Okay. I think I'm getting off a little bit on a tangent. So <laughs> okay, so so Edementor was supposed to be part of Edit Stock, and it's this interactive way of, of teaching people where they actually have to interact and do something. Um, so in order to build this, we created a prototype. There's a website called Invision App, I-N-V-I-S-I-O-N-A-P-P dot com. There are are a lot of different ones, uh, prototyping apps. There's one called Adobe XD, which comes free with the Creative Cloud subscription. So you may even have it. Yeah. No? Yeah. So what you do. I I don't don't know. I don't think most people
0: don't know what it does, but I think they often see it in their thing or they see it on um, during Adobe Max when they get in, when they, when they demo it. And it's like, oh, that's cool. I don't know. I had that thing.
1: Yes, that's it's the most powerful thing you don't know you have. It's like, it's like Adobe Acrobat is one of my favorite uh, programs in the Adobe suite. And like, they, nobody cares about it, but me, you know, <laughs> and it's so good. Um, not only can you like alter and combine PDFs, but you can send them out for signatures, you know, like DocuSign. Right. Um, yeah. And it's so convenient. I use it for contracts all the time.
0: But, but um, is, that, is XD for prototyping websites
1: or uh, are like a physical product design or apps or everything? everything, but mostly websites and mobile apps. Okay. So what it is, it's, you know, you you could make a Photoshop document or you make an XD document. And the first thing is it's just a clickable wireframe. It's literally black and white. It's got some buttons. And uh, in, in my case, when I used Envision app, which is similar to Adobe XD, I took a screenshot of Adobe Premiere and then took it into Photoshop and altered it the way that I wanted Edit Mentor to look and work. Then um, I created additional artboards of just buttons and then put it all together in a clickable wireframe. So wow. it's sort of yeah, it sort of looks like what your website's gonna be like. And when the user clicks a button, it has a reaction. But like you can't play the timeline. I mean, these are all still images. Mm-hmm. And I showed about 50 edit stock customers and recorded them going through it and asked their advice and feedback and what terminology they would use. And all of them were just like, this is such a cool idea. Like I would use it right away. Huh? Yeah. Well, so, well,
0: but so, but the, let's stop a second because the reason you were wanting to go through this, this hassle, as opposed to saying like, okay, let's train with resolve the free version because it's free and you can download it is that, you were wanting to build editing education that totally strips away the pretense of Avid Premiere, Final Cut, Resolve, uh, Vegas whatever. Like here's the basic concepts concepts of what one must know, what you have to know to edit anything digitally, but yet don't don't get into that bucket of one particular uh existing application.
1: Yeah, when, so we're agnostic, but it's it's not because You know, we don't like I literally don't care about what software you use. And the reason is because with Edit Mentor, you don't actually have to download or install anything. You can just log on from the library, from your mom's computer, from your grandparents' computer, from your personal. You could have a MacBook Pro or a Chromebook and you're going to get the exact same experience. All uh, browser based. Because it's all browser based and it just think if i had developed it only for premiere i already have a limited set of users because they must already know premiere or use premiere or intend to use premiere and that's it sure but to teach editing you've got to teach
0: some basic concepts that you can do there in the browser so when you are done with your edit mentor course you could jump into premiere or resolve or avid and be like oh i remember in point out point insert yeah. or i remember uh, you know back timing an edit like all that stuff
1: is pretty universal Um, as far as how you do it, it's very universal and it's also, we, we never teach a thing. We never teach a button like this. Like this was, this was actually how I learned some of the tools. I won't say which software brand, um, I took the course in, but they're all similar where it's like, click the end of the clip with say the ripple tool or the single trim, uh, icon or whatever tool it is. Right. Now type the number plus 15. That adds 15 frames to the end of a shot. You know, there is no lesson in Edit Mentor that's like that. Our lesson well, would say, yeah, like, I, we want to extend a moment. Go ahead.
0: No, no. I, th- I just want to say that uh, there are often um, training uh, things you go through that is very tool-based. And, and you know, they may, they may not even well, – I guess it probably all would always would be like – learn this editing tool and you get in there and it's literally like telling you a um, file menu, go to go here. It's telling you every little thing to do. And while that can make you feel like, you know, the software pretty well, I think when you're done with that type of training, you, you, you don't know editing. You only know how to push certain buttons in that tool, very specific buttons in that tool. And that is what a lot of the
1: training out there is. Yes. And it gives you the false impression that you are now really good. And it also can pigeonhole you a little bit. It's first of all, everyone should take technical training. Mm. I'm not poo-pooing technical training. It's what, but it shouldn't be the central hub of your education. It should be one of the spokes. Uh, I like that. Yeah. And that's, and I think that the creative aspect of editing should be the center. And then around that you teach, you learn about software and codecs and, you know, drive management and hardware and whatever else you need to learn about.
0: Well, Um, I think that teaching the creative side of it, like you're talking about, um, and it's something that is often talked about online. It's like, Oh, you know, Don't teach the tool, teach the, you know, teach the concepts. And, you know, I'm guilty of often teaching a tool because to be quite frank, it's, 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 it's very easy. You know, if you know the tool well, it's easy to teach it. Um, But there are other training courses out there that don't teach a tool and they try to teach concepts, concepts as well. But I think often we fall into the YouTube mentality where when someone asks for help online or they're trying to figure out, it's always, oh, go to YouTube and and search it on YouTube or, or here's a YouTube link. Right. Which I think is fraught with its own potential problems because the YouTube links are often wrong. They're often teaching um, inefficient ways and sometimes just the wrong ways to
1: do something. How, how do you avoid that type of trapping with Edit Mentor? Um, I just want so let me just back up for a second. And there's this great saying my wife likes to say, I hope I'm getting it right. But uh, if you want someone to build you a boat, teach them to long for the sea. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's a good one. And and that's what edit mentor is. You know, by the time that I was taking technical courses on Final Cut Pro and Avid, which I did at Video Symphony in Burbank, I was obsessed with and passionate about editing and working already in editing, and I could take I could pick up a dry manual like literally if you remember when Final Cut Studio used to come with like six books. Oh, yes. I have read those heavy. books, yes, <laughs> that, but the only people who would read that stuff are the people who are already longing for the sea. You know, that's not a good way to get someone who is curious or a, or a kid interested. It's not, it's not about taking technical courses. In fact, I think you can turn off a lot of people uh, and intimidate a lot of people by having them take a technical course at first. Um, A lot of people will say to themselves, I'm not a technical person, therefore this isn't for me. But Scott, you probably run into many editors who have cut super well-known projects who are not very good technically.
0: Oh yes, that is an absolute absolute fact. I mean, there are many great editors who, and and I sometimes like, I, I, I feel like I may, I hope I don't do this, but I may talk down sometimes to editors who are very like, one NLE specific, in the, and that's all they want to use. They want to use nothing else, partly because I can work in all of them, but that's mainly because I enjoy change and I have a market that requires that. But I think that something to be said for, you know what? I care not about the technical things because all I care about is telling the story. And if you are an editor who who lives in that space, then that's that's phenomenal because in this day and age, so much of it has become technical that you often – you, you you have to learn that kind of stuff, and if you don't learn it, um, there are certain jobs you can't you can't do, which is kind of which is kind of sad. But that's just the reality of you know the digital age, I guess.
1: Yeah, I would say the newer you are, the younger you are, the fresher you are to the beginning of your career, uh, or closer you are to the beginning of your career, technical knowledge will help you a lot getting jobs, and it's what you're expected to know. And you're mm-hmm. less expected to be really good at the, the artistic side. But by the time someone is hiring Scott Simmons, they are hiring you for your aesthetic and your experience, and they don't care at all what your technical knowledge is, and they probably don't ask. Yeah, um, and And you can probably charge a premium because ultimately the thing that they're buying is a really great cut, and they trust you to do that.
0: Well, if you think about it, you know, there, there was a time back in the day, you know, back in the day, film days, the telecine days, early, you know, uh, digital video camera days when you didn't have to know much technical stuff. There was usually somebody who kind of handled the technical and editors, they just pretty much cut and told the stories all along, you know, fast forward to this day that we're in now, there are many types of jobs that are everything, you know, it's everything technical because you've got graphics, you've got lots of weird formats coming in, you know, you've got... I, you know, I, I don't know, I'm trying like weird audio stuff going on. And if you, if you're not technical, you just can't do, you know, do that type of job. Like I think about all the, um in the zoom era, you know, these virtual meetings where it's so much of like, you've got a, you've got a zoom or some a talking head and you've got just tons of graphics over their shoulder, illustrating things like that. There are people who are doing a lot of that work and, and making a good living doing that. I mean, that's not creative. I mean, it's not, can be creative. It's not telling stories. It's just very, very technical. And there were, you know, there's a time that didn't exist at all. So there, I guess it does have its place, but what I think you want to do with edit mentor is get back to some of the, uh, you know, the, the basics of yes, understanding the, the storytelling side of it, understanding, you know, why you do certain things to elicit the emotional reaction or to help, you know, to help, to, you know, tell a story. Do you got to tell a story quicker? Do you, or do you have longer time in which to which, which to expand that story out? I mean, that's kind of that's to me. It seems like that's what Edit Mentor is is trying to do.
1: You know, it is. And if I were to uh, put Edit Mentor's goal as as it's developed, and as we've broadened the ambition of the company, what our goal is is to teach everybody. Something we call video literacy. We want everybody, you know. Let's we we have sold many thousands of seats to high school students, and that's kind of our target demo at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, or or even like uh, I know your son's been playing with Edit Mentor. You know he may or may not grow up to be a professional editor, but he will definitely grow up and make videos if he's not yeah. already. And what I'd like to impart on a person is just intentionality and understanding like I'm making a message. I'm going to do it on purpose. I'm going to put it in this order on purpose, not because I think that they want to become a professional video editor. Although, you know, obviously we teach those people too, but I just want everybody to be able to look at a video and think I understand why it's making me feel the way it is. I understand how the music is. Manipulating me, or how these sound bites or these images connected are manipulating me, even if they're not the person who ultimately is going to be making, I don't know, professional videos all the time. Sure, well, that's
0: part of what I've tried to impart on my on my oldest son, especially that like you need to learn video literacy because it will it will serve you well throughout um, junior high school, high school, college, and 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 there on. You know, like like he loves aquariums and he and he watches. Hours of of and he builds his own aquariums and does aquascaping things like that. I said those people had to learn to make those videos, the good ones and the bad ones. And you need to have this skill because it'll come in handy so many, so many places in your in your school and in and, and in your life. And I think I think that a lot of the target audience. Well, let me back that up. A lot of people listening to this podcast. Are probably not those who will are the target for edit mentor they're not the people who's going to sign up and sign in and and, and go through it um, but they are in a position with their post production careers and 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 you know the life they're living in to sort of bring in more people like like this you know why does someone want to be an editor? How do I learn to be an editor? You get asked these questions all the time and I think mm-hmm. edit mentor is uh, is sort of a new tool that someone like myself and experienced people can use to help other people learn it. I think I just, that seems to me like that's kind of everybody. I was just thinking the people listening here, you know, may not use it themselves, but boy, is it, is it a valuable thing to have in your back pocket to help others?
1: Yeah, I would say, first of all, we have a free course for filmmakers and I would be surprised if everybody listening to this, regardless of their skill level, didn't learn something from that course because, okay. Yeah, there's it's there's a lot of great information. And we have an advanced course taught by Stephen Mark, who's uh, edited every show you've ever heard of in your life, including Deadwood for HBO. And uh, if you can't learn something from that from him from that course, and you're not paying attention close enough. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that for a second because that,
0: so that's sort of like the, the, the premium offering, a relatively new offering that, that, uh, that you brought into Edit Mentor. is that the sort of like is the vision to have many of that type of thing like this is the first type of course in you know, the advanced course like that, but I guess you could you could have many different types of genres. you could have many different types of courses depending on what you know particular thing someone wanted to learn or is that, or is that getting too specific? Is that not what you want Edit Mentor to
1: be? No, I see it as every course that we offer or every uh, subject that we talk about will have a basic course that's free and an advanced course that costs money. Um, The basic course is pretty robust, but the advanced course is for someone who's trying to make a living using it or really needs to acquire a skill for usually for business purposes. Okay. Um, Like we're building a broadcast journalism course. The basic course is going to be free. But then we'll have an advanced course with either a professional documentarian or a professional news reporter, and that course will be paid for. Um, oh, nice! Yeah, but the basic course is you know ten hours of instruction, hundred interactive uh, challenges, and eight to ten lessons. So it's pretty robust. Well, I think uh, you know I've gone through parts of
0: it, and I think people may find, you know, as I said, that like the people listening may not need Edit Mentor, but I think you're right to encourage people to sign up and give it a try because I think what you'll see, it's kind of a different way of of teaching this stuff. We mentioned YouTube before because all of us, have watched YouTube videos for trying to figure out something, and you'll often you hit play you get past all the you know subscribe to me bullshit and you get finally get to the meat of it and you 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 watch a little bit you pause you tr- you try what's going on in your in your tool you kind of watch a little bit more you try you go back you rewind I think what people will find with edit mentor is it's it's not it's not a passive um watch and then do on your own system because it is sort of built it's 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 platform that's like a little nle built into the browser you are going through this type of training in a much different way than i think most people are used to when they come from a youtube video or a book that you follow along with like it's just it's just sort of a different different feel
1: all around Mm -hmm. and let me ask you a question philosophical one by the way, we I got okay. a couple more points I want to I want us to talk about later, which is the future of NLEs and uh, the future of education. But before right. okay, before I get to those two things, let me ask you something. If you had, if you were looking up information on something, like I don't care what, how to press a button or some artistic, you know, thing about video, would you rather watch a YouTube video or read? Um, an equal length article, like a transcript of a video.
0: <laughs> oh man. Okay. That's an interesting one. I prefer to read articles and I partly that's why I write articles and don't do videos because I feel like I can digest the material much better through text and some images. I can scan through it. I can dig in deeper as opposed to searching around a video. That's mm-hmm. just me. But, but jar, I, I would say the generation now, always wants video like they don't want to read anymore and i think that is that
1: general i think it's a generational thing maybe um so people have this impression that you know you're gonna learn more from a book than you will from a video um and i think of them much more like there there's pencils there's paintbrushes there's crayons they're not worse or better than each other they're different than each other they have different superpowers Video, the the superpower of video is that it gets information out super fast, and it can be encoded with an emotion, and it's very low processing power in your mind to accept it. Oh, and okay. Okay. So that's the power of a video. You can watch a video. You don't even have to know the language that it's in. You don't have to even (laughs) speak the language. It could have no words and you're going to gain information super fast. You'll have an emotional reaction to it. In fact, it's a video is a global language. It's one of the few languages that everyone in the world will understand. Even if you don't have any kind of spoken word, it's just yeah. it's a universal global language.
0: I, I never thought of it that way. That, that, that is that uh, that's, that's actually a cool point. Well, I think with that mentor is, is I think you're kind of getting the best of both worlds there, right? Because you do have videos that play along with the lessons, but then you do in the interface along with the video. So you, you've you kind of got, cause it, it feels to me like watching a video is great, but if you, if you're trying to watch to learn something and you watch a video, you're going to learn it better if you do as you watch or you do
1: as you read. Yes. So, okay. So why would you read something as opposed to watch a video on it? Because reading can be denser you can fit more information into, into it. You can get Mm -hmm. more in depth. Okay. But the goal of learning is retention. It's not just it's, it's retention of information and application of that information in an unfamiliar situation that's called critical thinking. Okay. That's the goal of learning now video and written text. If you were to take a quiz, on a video that you watched or a text that you read a week later, your retention is going to be something like 10%. That's it. The other 90% is gone. Yep. So even though it was fast to accept the information into your mind, the most of what you read is gone or what you watched is gone. And in that way, you don't learn more from a video or a book. Both of them you're going to forget about in a week. So what uh, actually what actually leads to learning and retention and critical thinking and application of skill. Um, what it is is when you reach back into your memory and try to apply something that you read or watched that the process of remembering or the pro- is what actually helps you not forget. So okay. if you were to, if you were to watch a video, and then be asked to perform a task based on that video one hour later, and then not again for a week. A week later, your retention is going to be significantly higher—like maybe even uh, you know half as much, half as much more as if you had only watched the video. So, is that kind of the uh, the the idea behind Edit Mentor? Yeah You sort of get that best of both worlds. It's, that's exactly the idea of, behind Edit Mentor. It is actually this is the science of learning. This is not my opinion. This is the reality of how human beings learn. And that's why all other subjects that you see in the the world, and you probably see this in your kids' homework that they bring home, their math puzzles are interactive games. Their uh, English word uh, learning is interactive games. They're learning to code by actually having to code. They're doing robotics by actually having to build robots, right? It's they might the, uh... also be watching videos or reading text, but it's the doing that's the learning. Absolutely. And that's why Edit Mentor needs to exist because it's the doing. And it's what no other video tutorial site or training company offers. What all of them will say is, you know, maybe work along with us. But when you work along with someone, like let's say you watch the video and then you try to copy it. Um, that's a one-way street still. The, the system isn't checking your work. It's not correcting errors that you're making. It's not helping you if you get stuck. And it's not identifying the weaknesses in your game. So that's the, this is another part of learning science that's very important. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but Mm-mm, it's all right. Another part of learning science that's very important is you need to use quizzing in order to identify weaknesses in your knowledge. Not to rank you as being the best or the worst editor, but to say, you know, you clearly don't understand this subject. So now we're going to drill this subject. Hmm. That's the purpose of of quizzing, testing, flashcards, super useful learning techniques. um, And those things we can build into Edit Mentor. That's why you have a score. That's why you can view your answers. That's why you can try things again. Um, And we're going to build features like quizzing where you can collect a bunch of questions on topics that you got wrong, um, automatically make, make a custom lesson based on your weaknesses, um, that's yeah, the sense so, of learning. Yeah.
0: Well, that's great. Cause I think that is, you're, you're right. You're applying something different to the, uh, to the learning about editing, which has direct right, traditionally been very, uh, very sort of, you know, even if it's not soft, software focused, it's very, um, go here, push this, do that type of thing. So I do, I do like that. Um, I do like that. You know, and talking about N NLE, you mentioned the future of NLEs since you have a little NLE built into edit edit mentor itself, what what do you what what do you say the future of NLE like what, what are we looking at here? Is there a time when it's all browser-based and and the Premiere Avid's and Resolve's the Final Cut's of the world are gone and we're all working on the same thing in a
1: browser? Yeah, I don't know that that those companies or that software will be gone, but I would imagine all of it will be in the browser. I think that you're going to, in the future, I don't think very many people are going to own a personal computer. I think most people are going to own what are called zero clients, which is just basically a screen and a connection to the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, The internet allows you to take advantage of something called elastic computing. Is that what a Chromebook is supposed to be anyway, almost? it's, It's exactly what a Chromebook is. Now you could buy a $3,000 MacBook pro conservatively $3,000, or you could buy a $200 Chromebook and you're going to work on edit mentor and have the exact same experience. And that's true of other web apps. So like, Mm -hmm. why is that? Because we use Amazon web servers that look at what kind of computer you have and then just dynamically scale up the amount of processing power needed to give you the same experience. And it's seamless, and you don't notice it, and it's infinite, basically. I mean, for practical purposes, it's infinite. And I don't care what kind of you know, MacBook Pro you're buying compared to um, an Amazon Web Services um, node that can add thousands or millions of processors instantly. It just makes so much sense to be able to, uh, you know, upload an 8K video and have it crunched by 500 computers at once instantly or virtually instantly than it does to, you know, run a compressor overnight. Well, videos. you know, I, I
0: think that's kind of where uh, you know, we, we are seeing moves toward cloud computing stuff as far as editing goes or our services. I mean, you know, there, there's still a real resistance, you know, even for people like myself who I have a big, you know, a 32 terabyte RAID there that I can put all that media on and run it on this fast machine locally. But, you know, it, it is sort of the inevitable change as, as you know, we, we change from linear editing to non-linear editing. And there'll be a time when we change from non-linear editing locally to non-linear editing in the cloud, especially as I think a production realizes, wow, we could put all that media up in that cloud, and then have you know quickly scale up or down with however many people we need, you know, on a, on an hourly basis, you know, if you will. Are we is are we is it bandwidth we need now to make that a reality, or or is AWS do we still need more in AWS to put you know a whole season of uh you know the uh, fishing for timbers show you know uh, up online? Like where where do, where's our bottlenecks right now?
1: So first of all, people are doing it. So let's just say like, this isn't some pie in the sky idea I'm coming up with on the spot, like this exists and it's probably existed for a lot longer than publicly, you know, than it has been in the public discourse. But like, you know, the the two bottlenecks really are um, latency, meaning literally the feeling as you're editing, it should feel instant when you press Mm -hmm. the space bar to play, it should feel instant. When cuts happen, you shouldn't feel buffering. Um, when you switch tools, it should feel like you're working on a local computer. So yep. latency is a real problem. Another bottleneck is um, upload, download speed, and bandwidth during playback. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things, some you know companies can address by having very fast lines, just like T1 lines or whatever. Um, yep. And you can also address that by having uh, servers in the cloud compress files uh, to proxy formats that can be played back very quickly. That and it's done, you know, media management is done automatically. And then when you press export, it just looks back at the originals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, those are the two big, two big places of bottlenecks. Uh, but the other thing I want to say is just the amount, it, it, you know, Just because you're working by yourself doesn't mean you won't want a browser-based editor because of all those advantages that I was talking about. Very Mm -hmm. fast elastic computing, an unlimited amount of uh, cloud storage, um, the ease of a client transferring material to you. So if the editing experience is the same as it is in your favorite NLE, you might choose the browser for those features anyway. Um, But if you're doing anything collaborative the browser allows you to connect hundreds of editors working even in the same projects anywhere in the world at any time and that's better than any um you know avid isis you've got in a in a data center at your local post house um, well, I mean,
0: it's funny talking about this kind of stuff as I uh, have seen our neighborhood where I live, they have been digging holes in the front yards to bury AT&T fiber. It's just a matter of infrastructure, you know, getting into place, you know, and, and this stuff will become more, more of reality than it, than it is now. I mean, that's, that's a bit of the, you know, the future of NLEs as we're talking about bandwidth and latency and stuff in the cloud. What about the future of education? How do, how are you seeing that? Is that is that you know? The, is the edit mentor the start of the future of education in this space, or or is there something there's something beyond edit mentor you, you, that
1: we don't even know about yet? Well, there's there's stuff beyond edit mentor that you don't know about yet. That's for damn sure. <laughs> Coming <on. laughs> actually, I should I should uh, I could even tell you a little bit about that, but it, it has to do with machine learning, um, which I'll get to. So, just the future of education is going to be if you look at the education market as a whole. This is going to blow your mind, okay? The number one market in the United States, the place where people spend the most amount of money is healthcare. Yes. And number two is education. Education consumes 9% of gross domestic product in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Well, healthcare that, is like what, 12%, 15%? It's pretty high. It's pretty high. Yeah. I don't know the I don't know the exact number, but it's a lot. So education is a multi-trillion dollar market. And most of that spending is on tuition, buildings, infrastructure stuff. Oh, and yeah. the digital spend is fairly low. It's a couple hundred billion dollars, which out of a multi-trillion but, but it's by far the fastest growing sector, finally. And the reason is COVID. Because, you know, a lot of teachers maybe... Tens of thousands of teachers and schools around the country were using paper and pencil for their grade books. And all of them now are switching to Google Classroom, Canvas, Blackboard, other learning management systems and other uh, online ecosystems that allow companies like Edit Mentor to prosper and grow. And unfortunately, in, the, in maybe the past 10 years pre-COVID, a lot of really great educational apps died on the vine because not a lot of teachers had adapted, had adopted rather that um, infrastructure that's required. Like, for example, let me just give you an example of, of how that could happen, how a, a piece of technology could die. Let's say you have 150 students in your class. And mm-hmm. this isn't hyperbole. We have a lot of customers with 150 students. So you got five classes. Each class has 30 students that you're seeing every 45 minutes as the teacher. Mm-hmm. In order for you to create accounts for every one of those students in Edit Mentor, you have to add their email address. They're going to get a link. The student then has to activate their link and, um, and get started working on the lesson. So that's 150 right. times you got to do that. That's hours and hours of work for the teacher. But if you've adopted something like Canvas, then the teacher just needs to set up the lesson once, which takes Mm -hmm. 10 minutes. And then every student who clicks the link to take the lesson, an an account is created for them automatically. So if you were grading with paper and pencil and you didn't have Canvas, it would be a lot of work to set up Edit Mentor, and you probably wouldn't use it even if it was a great tool. But if you had Canvas, you might, implement edit mentor because it takes five minutes and it actually saves you time on grading.
0: That, you know, as we talk about some of this stuff, uh, we talk about educating for editing. It sounds like, uh, you know, edit, editing is a profession, post-production is a, a profession. It sounds like a lot of these kids, they need to get into network management and programming because, um, there's so much that has to happen in the back end to make some of this stuff even work. It's kind of, it's kind of mind boggling that, um,
1: I would that it say it works at all. I would say for the next 10 or 20 years, if you went into a career in programming or video content creation, you would have work piling up.
0: yeah. not that we're trying to discourage people from the uh, uh media creation and post-production side of things but yeah you, you're right there's a, there's a whole uh it's a whole other world of stuff uh stuff out there i mean you know how long is reality TV going to be a thing and when there, you know, there's so many editing jobs in reality television you know how, how long is that going to um sustain you Forever. know are people going to get are they, they are not. people
1: going to finally get tired of that kind of content or no, or will no. there just just be more no 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 people will never get tired of it it'll, it'll last for, I mean, it's been around a lot longer than people think, and it'll be around forever. Um,
0: so, so when there's only cockroaches left after the big, uh, the great <laughs> apocalypse, there'll be cockroaches and reality TV is what they'll, you're telling me. There'll
1: be real housewives season 87. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people love, people love that stuff. It's just a genre. It's like, how long is the action film going to be around forever? Yeah. Like, how long is, uh, and, and I think there's also a misconception that people who watch reality TV are, are dumb. And that could not be farther from the truth. It's just, it's a different, um, you know, some people come home and to relax, watch Game of Thrones. And mm-hmm. some people come home and to relax, they watch Guy Fury cooking. And both are, both are completely valid things to watch. It doesn't make one better than the other.
0: Well, and there's so much reality TV out there, unscripted television, however you want to phrase it, that that any subject that you want to watch, you can pretty much find, find it. It may not be on uh, your local cable or Netflix. You may have to go to YouTube or some, um, you know, like I think about the Titanic channel, which is all about the Titanic. Uh, it's there. You just have to search it out. And if it's not there... You could probably create it and um, and you know make a small living with it because if you like you said earlier, if you have the question and you like it, then there is someone else out there that also has the question and also likes it. So you know yes. the internet lets us bring those people together. So, well, Misha, uh, so any what's our what's our wrap up here? What's uh, any any um, any big great big announcements about new things coming to Edit Mentor or
1: the future of uh, talk about the future of healthcare and medicine? We could talk about that for a while, but uh,
0: probably not. I don't need to maybe,
1: on that one. Maybe the last thing I wanted to I want to I want to uh, give you one more piece of really interesting information and then I'll do it like a send off. How does that sound? Okay. Okay. The future of NLEs, uh, we've talked about that it's going to be cloud-based elastic computing. We did not talk about machine learning. Uh, machine yes. learning is going to enable the a normal person. This is some of the ambition of Edit Mentor. You'll be editing your video, and as you're editing, it could give you creative suggestions along the way. So, for example, like, your main character uh, isn't on screen more than the supporting character. If I were you, I would change these three clips and make them a little longer. Or your main character didn't change enough emotionally in this scene. In the beginning of the scene, they're kind of happy. At the end of the scene, they're kind of happy. I recommend these three takes of this shot with a different facial expression where they're a little more upset Mm, that is the future of machine learning and editing that's some scary
0: interesting scary stuff because you know it's still the the uh computers and emotion is that thing that where where people say oh you know what they just it's just not there yet they just they're never going to be able to you know to to get it like humans get it but they've gotten a lot of stuff so far so are you saying that they will get
1: it eventually uh i'm saying that Videos are always made for people by people, and that will always be true. But machine learning can help a, a person improve their message through suggestions. I don't actually believe that there'll be an auto edit button where you press a button and it just makes the perfect movie uh, or a movie that's even good. But I do think that you could simulate an audience's reaction or you could um, analyze a movie's story arc or color palette or Mm -hmm. soundscape and all those things can inform creative decisions that a human will do
0: gotcha yeah. I, I, and I think that's, that's good to, good to hear because a lot of people do believe that AI and machine learning is going to just, you know, make, because we're talking about editing, to make editing uh, editors uh, unnecessary in, in, in the future. And, and you know, I think that's not the case. I think about what, um, you know, like Philip Hodgetts and Intelligent Assistance, their company, they their, mm-hmm. their tagline, which is like, take the boring out of post. And I yeah. love that. I love to, I love the boring, I want the boring things to go away, even if I don't get to bill as many hours sometimes I, I, I'd rather not do the boring things and let some of that happen uh, in an automated fashion. So I can get to, get to what I really want to do um, because if you didn't spend eight hours doing the boring, you're much more fresh to do what you really want to do. So I think in the end you'll get a better, uh, better product. Yeah. All's, and all's
1: there's, and if you think that eliminating eight hours of boring means that there's eight hours less total work, that's not true. Because if your producers, content producers don't have to spend money on that stuff. What are they going to do? They're going to spend it on more content. So you're going to, it actually grows the marketplace in general, and you'll just be doing the same 16 hours of work, you know, but instead of eight boring hours and eight creative hours, you'll do 16 creative hours.
0: I like that. That's good. Misha, thanks for the chat here. Um, it's editstock.com. But more importantly, the, the uh, what we spend a lot of time talking about is this new way to teach editing. It's just editmentor.com. So even if you're an experienced editor, you think you don't need um, to learn more about editing, check it out because you may learn something and you may be able to um, push some people toward learning that they wouldn't have done otherwise, which I think is really important. So Great.
1: thank you for the chat, sir. Thank you. If I could just leave uh, one Message to anyone listening to this is to make sure that you are leaving space in your day for something that you enjoy, and to pursue it, uh, whatever that may be—entrepreneurship, creativity, or or otherwise. I like it. Could be, could be golf or something like that. There you go. It could be.